Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also the sermon text from John 14, verses 12 to 17. Give your ear to the gospel of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father." And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you Know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the spirit of truth who is with us and in us and among us and who also inspired these words. As we meditate on them transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to believe his promises to us with deeper, greater faith. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I doubt that any of you have ever been offered a billion dollars, but if you can imagine how breathless and overwhelmed you would be by such an offer, you can begin to appreciate what your reaction should be to the promises of Jesus here in John 14, verses 12 to 17 that I just read. And you can open your Bibles to John 14 and follow along with the sermon today. Jesus has been attempting to comfort the troubled hearts of his disciples. They were distressed, they were dispirited, and his announcement that he was leaving them sent them into shock and despair to the extent that they even understood what he was talking about. He had promised that he was going to prepare a dwelling place for them in heaven and that he was going to return someday so that they could be with him there, but they were having a hard time understanding and putting the pieces together. And now in our passage this morning, Jesus lays down three striking promises that every follower of Jesus can count on until he comes back, until he comes the second time. The first promise in this passage is that believers will do greater works than Jesus did. The second promise is that Jesus will do whatever believers ask in his name. And the third promise is that Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to believers. So we're going to look at each of these promises in turn. First, believers will do greater works than Jesus did. Jesus says in verse 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. That's quite a statement. Greater works 
than Jesus' works? That's the promise, but how can it be? How can it be true? It seems incredible. Jesus healed the blind, walked on water, calmed storms, raised the long-time dead, miraculously multiplied bread and fish, things that no one else had done and would do. These are the greatest works we can imagine. Is Jesus saying that believers will be able to perform even greater miracles? I don't think so. The meaning of this promise is not found in the miracles that the apostles performed after Christ went back to heaven. We read of no apostle walking on water or raising a person who had been dead four days like Lazarus. The miracles of the apostles in Acts are not, in fact, greater than the miracles of our Lord in the Gospels. By no standard can we make them greater, these physical miracles. But we're helped here by remembering that God looks at things differently than we do. In particular, He doesn't always share our view of what constitutes greatness. We need to ask ourselves why physical miracles should be considered great or the greatest of all. Why should we assume that Jesus is referring here in this promise to physical miracles? More likely, Jesus is referring to the spiritual miracles that the church would do. With the help of Jesus, of course, after he left. Luke 10 helps us to see that to Jesus, spiritual miracles are greater than the physical ones. Now, you don't need to turn there, but you'll remember in Luke 10 that the disciples had returned from their very successful preaching trip, their mission that Jesus had sent them out on. And in verse 17 of Luke 10, it says that these 72 missionaries, disciples, returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Okay, so they're, they're out there taking dominion and they're ecstatic that they were able to cast out devils. But how does Jesus reply to their excitement? In verses 19 and 20 of Luke 10, he says to them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see that perspective that Jesus gives his disciples and us? Much needed perspective. Jesus here explicitly ranks their conversion, their salvation, above physical miracles. So if God ever grants you the supernatural ability to heal or to cast out demons or raise the dead, you should not rejoice that God has given you this ability more than you rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And if this is the case in Luke 10, why shouldn't it be the case here in John 14? 
what Jesus has in view when he says greater works is the far greater number of conversions and the far wider spread of the gospel that would take place under the ministry of his church, starting with the ministry of his apostles in the book of Acts. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. One commentator, Leon Morris, writes, What Jesus means we may, I'm sorry, what Jesus means we may see in the narratives of Acts. There are a few miracles of healing, but the emphasis is on the mighty works of conversion. You see, Jesus never preached a sermon under which 3,000 souls were converted in one day as they were on the day of Pentecost. One preacher, Henry A. Ironside, put it this way. Jesus was not speaking of miracles. His chief work was not performing miracles, but revealing the Father, bringing knowledge of the Father. Don't miss that point. He goes on to say, it was that of which he was speaking. As a result of this, of his three and a half years of ministry, when he left this scene, his scene, he said goodbye to a group of about 500 disciples. There were, doubtless, Morris says, a few more scattered about, but not very many, excuse me, Ironside says. Very few saw in him the revelation of the Father. But go on a few days, 50 days later. Ah, then Peter and the rest of the eleven stand up on the day of Pentecost and the third person of the Trinity comes upon them in power, and they are prepared to witness for him. They preached a crucified and risen Christ, and what happened? 3,000 believed. Probably more in that one day than in all the three and a half years of our Lord's ministry. When you realize that when Jesus left this scene committing his gospel to a little group of 11 men in order that they might carry it to the ends of the earth, at that time, the whole world, with the exception of a few in Israel, was lost in the darkness of heathenism. But in 300 years, Christianity closed nearly all the temples of the heathen Roman Empire and numbered its converts by millions. These were the greater works, and down through the centuries, he still carries on this ministry. End quote. Greater works means more conversions. No work is greater than winning souls to Christ. There is no greater work than being instrumental in making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the work that you should be doing, that we should be doing in the world through our various vocations and callings and relationships. Parents, this is the work that you must be doing in your homes, the great work of bringing up your children in the discipleship and instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus allows the ministry of his weak and insufficient servants, which is all of us, to be more successful than his own. His visible presence isn't necessary to the growth of his kingdom. 
Christ can further his cause. He can grow his kingdom on earth as much by sitting at the Father's right hand in heaven as he can by being physically present on the earth. There's nothing too difficult. There's nothing too great for us to do as long as our Lord is with us, as long as our Lord intercedes for us in heaven at God's right hand. So keep working in faith. Expect Jesus to do great things through you, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in all your spheres of influence. You likely feel weak and lonely like the apostles. You might even feel incompetent and unequipped. But Jesus is still working in you and through you, even when you cannot see it. And even though you can never see him physically. Your works, our works, can only be greater than his works because he is with us and for us. He's praying for you and fighting next to you. Jesus doesn't need our strategies and skills, but you definitely need, we definitely need his prayers and his presence. It wasn't so much Joshua's sword that defeated Amalek in Exodus 17 as it was the intercession of Moses upon top of the hill as the battle raged down below. Whenever Moses grew weary, you remember what happened. When he, when he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But whenever Moses kept his hands lifted, raised, Joshua prevailed. That was the decisive factor, not Joshua's battle plan or skill. Unlike Moses, Jesus never grows weary in interceding for you, for us. He's the tireless mediator. He's always praying for you and he's always with you, enabling you to do greater works than he did. The second promise in this passage is that Jesus will do whatever believers ask in his name. Another striking promise. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 of John 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Praying is as simple a duty as it is great a duty. And Christ's words here are a very direct encouragement to pray. To pray. To just get down on your knees and pray. To stop what you're doing and pray. Simple prayers. J.C. Ryle says, Everyone who kneels daily before God and from his heart says his prayers has a right to take comfort in these words. Weak and imperfect as his supplications may be, so long as they are put in Christ's hands and offered in Christ's name, they shall not be in vain. 
we have a friend at court, an advocate with the Father. And if we honor him by sending all our petitions through him, he pledges his word that they shall succeed, end quote. When we believe this promise and endeavor to act on it, we should take for granted, of course, that our request must be for the good of our souls. This promise applies to eternal benefits, not temporal ones. Whatever and anything, those words don't include things like comfort, wealth, possessions, worldly success. Those, those things are often not good for us, and God knows it. And Jesus loves us too well to give them to us just because we want them. But whatever is good for your soul, do not doubt that Christ will let you have it. He will give it to you when you ask in his name, trusting in Jesus. We can ask then why so many Christians have so little. Why do so many believers go through life with little joy, little peace, with little experience of the promised abundant life, with little strength in the service of Christ? Why aren't we doing more of these greater works? James 4.2 answers, at least in part, you do not have because you do not ask. You're not praying, that's why you don't have. You have little because you ask so little. Or perhaps you have virtually nothing because you ask for virtually nothing from God in prayer. The primary reason you're not better than you are is that you've not asked the Lord for more. You languish in performance because you languish in prayer. We're not hemmed in by the Lord, but by ourselves. That's what James says. In Psalm 81.10, God says this to Israel. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide in prayer, and God will fill it up. Do you want to do much for your Lord? Do you want to leave a mark on this world? Nothing wrong with that. The one who does much for Christ, the one who does greater works than Christ, will also prove to be one who prays much. And there are no exceptions to this rule. No exceptions to this rule. The first promise in verse 12 is contingent on the second promise Summarized in verses 13 and 14. In other words, you won't be able to do those great works. Promised in verse 12. Until you start asking God for them in prayer. As verses 13 and 14 say. And so I ask. Are you trying to do much for Christ apart from 
much prayer? Are you trying to leave your mark on the world apart from much prayer? Are you trying to take dominion and do those greater works for Christ apart from much prayer? If so, your life will prove to be full of misdirected priorities, constant frustration, and overall ineffectiveness. So think about your goals and your plans, your strategies, your desires, your values. Consider your hopes and dreams for this life. What do you want to accomplish? And how are you accomplishing it? Have you spent a tenth as much time praying about those things as you have been thinking about them or trying to orchestrate them? Do you pray as much as you daydream? The key phrase there in verses 13 and 14 comes at the end of verse 13. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the heart of Jesus, and that's the purpose of prayer. That the Father may be glorified in the Son, through the Son. That's the end to which Jesus wants you to pray. When Jesus says twice in verses 13 and 14 to pray in my name, what he means is that you pray for what he desires. That's one of the things that it means. You pray for what he wants, what he can put his name on, what he wants to put his name on. That's what you should be praying for, asking him for. He wants you to pray for what he desires. And then he tells us what he wants most, that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Above all, that's what Jesus wants for the Father to be glorified in him. And if this is Jesus' desire, it obviously should be our desire, which means it should be what we pray for. It should shape our prayers more than anything else. It should shape our prayers more than our own desires, our own concerns. This is unfortunately a foreign idea to many to many Christians we tend to think of prayer primarily if not exclusively as a means of getting things from God we ask and he gives that's the point of prayer and it's true that God does give us things in prayer one of the aspects of prayer, but more fundamentally, we should think of prayer as a means by which God gets something from us. James Boyce put it this way, the goal of prayer is not the fulfilling of our requests, it is the glorification of God. While he was on the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ glorified the Father. He said in his great priestly prayer of John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. But the way Jesus did this 
was not by any way that we would call glorious. Jesus was a wandering preacher who, as he himself said, had nowhere to lay his head. He was misunderstood. He was ridiculed. His own disciples did not understand him. Eventually, one betrayed him, while still another denied him. All deserted him. Then he was arrested, tried, cruelly beaten, and executed. This was not what we would desire, either for Jesus or for ourselves. Yet this was God's will for Jesus. And it was precisely in these things that God was glorified. End quote. If we really know what this means, it will transform both our prayers and our whole lives. The, the reason so many of our prayers go unanswered, or at least seem to go unanswered, is that our lives as well as our prayers are out of tune with God's will and uninterested in God's glory. Our lives, as well as our prayers, whenever we do get around to praying, are too often centered on the temporal and the visible rather than on the eternal and the invisible. The third promise in this text is that Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to believers. You can follow along with me in verses 16 and 17. You'll notice I'm skipping verse 15 today because I plan to come back and cover it. Verses 16 and 17 say, And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper or counselor or comforter or advocate, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, excuse me, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the first time in scripture that Christ mentions the Holy Spirit as a gift to his people. The first time the Spirit is mentioned as a gift to His people by Christ. Now, we need to know and understand that the Holy Spirit lived in and among God's people in the Old Testament. We shouldn't ever suppose that any of the saints in the Old Covenant were saved apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, working in their hearts and minds so that they could believe the promises of God. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is given with peculiar influence and power to believers in the new covenant in a new, special, different way. And that's the special promise of this passage. The special promise on the lips of Jesus here in the verse before us. So let's focus Let's, let's kind of home in on a handful of the truths that Jesus mentions here about this, holy, this comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom he's going to send, that he has sinned now from our perspective. First, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person. He's not a mere force that is with us. He's not an inward 
feeling that God gives. He's a helper. Other good translations are comforter, advocate, counselor. And whatever word we use there, the word necessarily connotes personality. It describes what a person does. And so, so however we translate it, however your Bible that you have on your lap translates it, we must see the Holy Spirit as a person who comes alongside and lives inside of us and helps us in personal ways. This is very important for us to understand this aspect of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does as a person of the Godhead on our behalf. Second, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth in verse 17. It's the Holy Spirit's special office to apply the truth to the hearts of believers. The Spirit guides us into all truth and he sanctifies us by the truth. Third, Jesus says in verse 17 that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because... It neither sees him nor knows him. The operations of the Holy Spirit are invisible and indiscernible in every way to the natural man, to the person outside of Christ, outside the faith. The world never experiences true sorrow for sin or true repentance or true faith in Christ It can't understand these virtues because they're produced by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Fourth, Jesus says in verse 17 that the Holy Spirit dwells in believers and is known by believers. And we kind of need to see the, take these together, see them as complementing each other. Because he lives in us, we know the feelings that he creates and the fruit that he produces. Because he lives in us, he confirms that we belong to God. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 16, along those lines. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's what the Spirit does. Fifth, and finally, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. Or unto the age, literally. Until the end of this age, the Holy Spirit will remain with us on earth until Christ comes back the second time. And of course, he's not going to cease to be with us after that. But the promise here is particular to this time when we need the Spirit. In the physical absence of Jesus The Holy Spirit supplies all of our needs and he fills up in us, in the church, what is lacking, as Paul puts it. These truths about the Holy Spirit are of vast importance 
They're of vast importance in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit-filled life, which should be your goal, the Spirit-filled life can never be one that is ignorant of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in these verses. So take care to grasp these truths firmly and never, never let them go. Your spiritual peace, your spiritual safety depend not only on your knowledge of the whole truth about Jesus Christ, but also on your knowledge of the whole truth about the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll see that the whole Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, have saved us and made their home in us. We need to understand what that means. We need to consider what it means for each person to live in us, to make his home in us. And so beware of any doctrine of the church, Beware of any doctrine of baptism. Be any, beware of any doctrine of the Lord's Supper that in any way obscures the necessity of the Spirit's work in the hearts of believers. The new covenant promise in the old covenant was that the Spirit would do greater works than He had done in previous covenant. And those greater works would be done in our hearts. He would write the law on our hearts. He would put the Spirit in us, in our hearts. Beware of any theological program that turns the inward work of the Holy Spirit into a mere form. Beware of any preacher or teacher who emphasizes the new covenant ceremonies more than he emphasizes the Spirit's work in the hearts of new covenant believers. This type of error is to be avoided as a deadly error. And so I close with Paul's words in Romans 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have made us your children and that we belong to you because of the Spirit's work in us. And we ask that that same Spirit who has united us to your Son, Jesus, would work in us greater works than Jesus did. And that he would work in us greater faith than we have now. Lord, help our unbelief And help us even this week to walk in the Spirit for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.